Hi, this is Mike Adams. Thanks for listening to Adams on Agriculture. Join me Monday through Friday for the latest farm and agriculture news from around the world. Informing America's farmers and ranchers, this is AOA, produced by the American Ag Radio Network. Here's your host, Mike Adams. Hello, everyone. Welcome to AOA. Thank you so much for joining us, letting us be part of your day. We always appreciate it. Coming up today, we'll take a look at the ongoing potato dispute between the U.S. and Mexico. We'll preview tomorrow's big USDA report, and we'll get more reaction to the Supreme Court ruling on RFS waivers. That's kind of where we'll start with Todd Neely from DTN. Todd, thank you for joining us. I think uh, we better add the Supreme Court to the ag beat, right? All of a sudden, uh, uh, they're ruling on several ag issues. Yeah, absolutely, Mike. You know, uh, not only did we have the the ruling on Friday in uh, the RFS case, but uh, the Supreme Court yesterday denied a petition from the North American Meat Institute um, to go ahead and, and review the Prop 12 in California. And so that was denied by the court. Um, and I think, uh, who knows, at some point we might see another return to the court, another request uh, on that law, because there's a lot that's still ongoing. But, yeah, you're right. It's uh, We've had a lot of stuff going on in the courts here lately. I, I don't see it slowing down anytime soon. No. Yeah, this... Uh decision by the Supreme Court denying a petition to review California's Prop 12, as you said, that was in in relation to the North American Meat Institute uh, suit against Prop 12. The national pork producers and some others have another suit against uh, right. Prop 12, so it's very much still in the, in the legal system. Uh, on the RFS ruling, I find it interesting. Uh, basically, we're right back where we were in that it's up to the yeah. EPA to make its decisions on the uh, on RFS waivers, the the ruling doesn't say they have to grant them, so it just puts it back right. in their discretion, and and we'll see where we go from here. And if the Biden administration's actions will back up their words of support for the biofuels industry, yeah, absolutely. And uh, you know, I know the industry is is trying to spin this and trying to paint this in a in a positive light and saying that uh, you know there are still parts of the Tenth Circuit ruling that. EPA is going to have to follow when it, when it comes to future uh, exemption requests. But you're right. I think we're at the point we were we were at before this ever even made it to the court system. Um, you know, and before that, it really has been subject to whoever's uh, whoever's administration is in charge and whatever their policies and views of biofuels are. And I think that really is where we are now. We're back to that point. And um, although there's been some good signs coming from the Biden administration that it's maybe going to turn the other direction on on this issue it's maybe it's going to lean more heavily toward biofuels uh, when it comes to these exemptions Uh, but we won't know until uh, you know what we have like 70 exemption requests that are still pending dating back a decade Um, and so i guess we're going to find out in short order you know what what the, the new administration is going to do and will they lower RVO requirements? That's another step in this. And it's hard to have a lot of confidence in the administration being fully supportive of biofuels when they're all the time talking about electric vehicles. It doesn't seem that uh, uh, liquid fuels really is a big priority uh, for this administration. So, But we'll see. Yeah, and you're right. I, I think that, you know, that, at the, that particular issue, I think, has caught... 
the ethanol industry may be just a little flat-footed. I, I don't know that they expected uh, when the Biden administration came into power that uh, there would be any emphasis. Uh, well, I shouldn't say any, but, uh, you know, moving past by, you know, liquid fuels when we have such a, a thriving biofuels industry, an industry that seems like it's always ready to grow and there's always more to, to be had in, in, in that industry. Um, in a way, I, I do think that, uh, you know, this administration, it has a, it has a real opportunity. You know, it, it can look at biofuels as a solution or it can kind of just uh, push it to the side. And, and you're right. So far, we've heard nothing uh, but good things about electric vehicles. And we've heard, you know, little bits and pieces about eth how ethanol and biodiesel and other uh, biofuels fit into the, the big picture. So the president this week makes his way to Wisconsin. There at one time, we thought he was going to maybe take Secretary Vilsack with him and maybe there would be some talk, uh, some discussion about some ag issues like the beef industry and, and markets and things like that. But now we're told Secretary Vilsack will not be going uh, with the president to Wisconsin and that the focus will be entirely on infrastructure and not other ag issues. And certainly infrastructure impacts ag. But uh, this infrastructure picture is completely uh, confusing because you got competing bills and which one is is the president backing and does it have to have something else with it i mean what a mess this has become yeah you're right i i think you know and it's a, it's a huge issue for rural america as you know we've uh, we've seen years of deterioration in in our infrastructure highways and bridges and uh you know we're still trying and, and pushing the issue when it comes to broadband trying to trying to deploy more of that in, in areas of the country where it's needed. And I think what we're needed, what's needed right now is just some sort of a focus in D.C., whether, you know, we come together, you know, amongst the Senate and the House and we get a, uh, you know, we get kind of a conference committee put together and decide where it's going and include the White House. I mean, I think it has to be more focused. You know, it's all over the place right now. And I think a lot of people, while they're, you know, guardedly optimistic about something being done, apparently some deal's been reached. Uh, we really don't know what that's actually going to look like. It has been, you know, you talk about lack of transpar transparency or lack of clarity. I mean, we've got so many different things proposed, uh, but no details. And, you know, it's just it seems like it's every day it, big questions on big issues. Yeah, you're right, Mike. And I and I think, uh, you know, it kind of goes back to. Uh, you know, trying to figure out what the priorities are. I, I think um, it seems early on that Biden administration is trying to bite off a little bit of everything, you know, trying to go every direction it possibly can and get as much mm -hmm. done, you know, in the first first year of, of the administration, perhaps. Uh, but it would be it would be kind of nice to see, a, you know, maybe a bit of a drawback and, and really try to get a handle on some of these big issues and infrastructure. Uh, this has to be done right. I mean, if it's going to be something that's going to benefit the entire country, in particular the rural areas, it's going to have to be highly focused, and, and you know, it's going to be uh, driven a lot by what the needs are in, in many of these uh, smaller rural areas in the country. And the frustrating part is they could get it done if they would, if they would, as you said, focus on on the uh, the needs that are out there, which I, there's bipartisan acknowledgement of, but they keep wanting to go with all, a lot of other issues, social agenda that they want to put in there. And that's what bogs it down. That's absolutely right. You know, I think, like I said, I think sometimes, you know, we, we have too many, uh, too many irons in the fire, too many different directions that, that we're seeing this administration go. 
Um, I, I do think, though, at some point, where there's going to be some sort of an agreement on the big things. You know, I, I think the highways, roads, and bridges aspect of it is, is something that everyone can probably agree to. I mean, you look across the country, it's state by state. We have areas, rural areas, that are in need of repair. Um, and I, I think that that's probably, uh, probably a common ground. Well, let's hope they can reach that common ground and get something done. Todd, good to talk with you. Thanks a lot. Yeah, thank you, Mike. DTN reporter Todd Neely. Up next, the latest on the U.S.-Mexico potato dispute. Cam Quarles, CEO of the National Potato Council, joins us next on AOA. Hi, this is Mike Adams. You're listening to AOA, Adams on Agriculture. Don't go away. More Adams on Agriculture coming right up. Recently on Adams on Agriculture, Ethan Lane, Vice President, Government Affairs for the National Cattlemen's Beef Association. What do you think about this grant program? Well, this is great news. It's always cool to see something that we've engaged on here in Washington and worked on come to fruition and start to bear fruit for our producers around the country. At the height of COVID last year, there was a lot of conversation about processing capacity and how we could empower some of these smaller plants around the country. Yeah, I think that's the key thing here, the key takeaway. You have said that this grant money will help ensure that we're not just making big plants bigger, but expanding capacity in those smaller independent facilities. That's the name of the game. Everything we're working on back here right now is focused on delivering those resources to the ground. At the margins that we're all familiar with, with the big four, if they want to add more capacity, they've got the checkbook to do it. We want to empower other market participants, and and we think that's where the federal government can help through some of these programs, and that's where we're putting our focus. For the information important to rural America, join us on Adams on Agriculture. If I could be you, and you could be me, for just one hour. If you could find a way to get inside each other's mind. Walk a mile in my shoes. Walk a mile in my shoes. Walk a mile in my shoes. We've all felt left out. And for some, that feeling lasts more than a moment. We can change that. Learn how at belongingbeginswithus.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council. Walk a mile in my shoes. Blood clots can happen to anyone. Up to 900,000 people in the United States are affected by blood clots each year, and 100,000 die from them. Blood clots don't discriminate. You or a loved one could be at risk right now. The good news is blood clots can be prevented. Knowing the risks and symptoms are key. On average, one person in the United States dies of a blood clot every six minutes. Don't let that be you or someone you know. Learn more at stoptheclot.org slash spread the word. All right, crew, let's get her dug. Honey, you want to give me a hand? I'm planting that tree, remember? No matter how large or small your digging project may be, no matter how urban or rural, you must always call 811 before any digging project. 811 is our national one-call number, alerting your local utility companies to come out and mark any lines they have near your dig site. You must call 811 at least two to three business days before any digging project so you can avoid hitting our essential buried utilities. This includes natural gas and petroleum pipelines, electric, communication cables, and water and sewer lines. So before you do this or this, make sure you do this. For digging projects big or small, make the call to 811. Brought to you by Common Ground Alliance. 
You're listening to AOA, Adams on Agriculture. Hi, this is Mike Adams. You can rely on us for the latest farm and ranch news from around the world. Information America's farmers and ranchers need to know on AOA. Now, back to Mike Adams. When last we talked with Cam Quarles, CEO of the National Potato Council, it was good news about the dispute between Mexico and the U.S. over potatoes, but uh, um, we want to get an update on that and see if things are going smoothly or not. Cam, thank you for joining us. Sounds like there's still some areas of concern here, right? Yeah, there are, but, you know, we're trying to be optimistic on this, Mike. I I think we had a, a... A great ruling that came out of the Mexican Supreme Court uh, a couple of months ago, and that has paved the way for the two countries to get together and reinstate access for U.S. potatoes to to enter the entirety of Mexico. Um, Where there there have been a couple of signs on the Mexican side that uh, were a little troubling for us, but we think the administration is pushing pretty hard on this. We kind of wanted to lay out for them in a, in a letter that we, we sent yesterday um, some of the fundamentals that we want to see in order to not just open the market, but keep that market open, hopefully for, for decades, to benefit both U.S. farmers and Mexican consumers. We, we think there's a lot for both sides to gain here. So there'll be a big meeting this summer with uh, Secretary Vilsack and Mexican ag leaders, right? That's right. Um, Secretary Vilsack is going to going to meet with his counterpart here. We understand it's going to occur in August, and at that time, we're very hopeful that uh, an announcement can be made that um, that reinstates that access for U.S. potatoes. Again, you go back; it was it was over seven years ago. Uh, we very briefly had access to the entirety of the country of Mexico for about three weeks before the Mexican industry sued their own government, and that's what resulted in this Mexican Supreme Court ruling that we had this year. During that three-week time that U.S. fresh potatoes were going to the entirety of Mexico, uh, the price that consumers saw at retail dropped substantially. And so we're, we're hopeful that, um, that when we get full access, we can deliver safe, affordable U.S. potatoes to a consumer base that has never really had access to that supply before. And uh, there's a lot of of trade benefits between the two countries and certainly for our industry. Where are we right now as far as being able to move potatoes into Mexico? Is it still being restricted? Still being restricted. Uh, Mexico, uh, in in order to to protect the vast majority of their market, they they grudgingly agreed to allow U.S. fresh potatoes to be shipped into a very narrow band, only 26 kilometers uh, from the U.S.-Mexico border, 26 kilometers south. And so you, you can just ship into that border area. Unfortunately for us, and unfortunately for the vast majority of Mexican consumers, uh, most of those consumers don't live in that very narrow band. So there is some U.S. product moving in there, but it certainly doesn't access the big population centers that you want to see in a in a free uh, uh, trade relationship. So you're hopeful this meeting in August uh, with ag leaders will will get that uh, rectified, but. 
you, you, we don't really know yet, right? For sure, when or if they will completely open up their market. Yeah, we don't know. And uh, you know, the the major thing, Mike, is I, I think it's pretty pretty clear how you know we had access seven years ago. The protocols were fairly well established, and you know we we know how to move product internationally. The U.S. is very good at that. The real question is, will the the domestic industry in Mexico will they put huge political pressure on their government to slam the door shut at some time in the future? Uh, we, we don't want this to be temporary access. We we want it to be something that that folks on both sides of the border can count on. That's the real wild card there. And any changes to the import protocol um, that that would that would call that into question. Mexico. Uh, just a couple of months ago, unilaterally changed some of the testing requirements on U.S. potatoes heading south into into Mexico. Um, those testing requirements, uh, doing that without notifying USDA, it raises a huge red flag about whether or not at, at some point in the future the Mexican industry uh, wants to use whatever they're doing in that with those, that new testing protocol. Um, to, to manufacture an excuse, essentially, to slam the door and throw U.S. potatoes out again, it's um, it, you know it's a it's a it's a challenging situation. We have seen this pattern before. Uh, it's it's occurred uh, multiple times over the long two decade history of this trade dispute. But we we want to we're 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 urging folks not to allow it to repeat going forward into the future. So this wasn't covered under USMCA. It was it was not covered under USMCA. This has been, uh, you, you know, the legal process. Essentially, what what the domestic potato industry in Mexico um, they they weren't suing the United States. They were suing their own government for allowing U.S. potatoes to come into the country. Their argument was that the Mexican government didn't have the constitutional authority to allow agricultural imports. That's a question that lies entirely outside of USMCA. There are certainly responsibilities that Mexico has within USMCA um, to, that, that they need to live up to, and they're clearly, if, if this dispute goes on, if they don't provide us with our access, they're clearly in violation of those responsibilities. But the text of the agreement, it couldn't solve the potato issue. We're talking with Cam Quarles, CEO of the National Potato Council. All right, um, Cam some big proposals in Congress right now. We're waiting for some kind of action on infrastructure, on the Growing Climate Solutions Act. What are you, as in the potato industry, what are you most focused on right now? Yeah, I, I think the, the infrastructure bill is kind of getting a lot of folks' attention, Mike. Um, and you know, clearly, for an industry that exports 20% plus of its, uh, of its crop every year, uh, we've got to have competitive uh, seaports, roads, rails. Uh, everything has got to be up to a, the, the global standard where the U.S. can compete. The challenge is how you pay for that, and we obviously do not want to lose vital tax provisions that allow farmly, family farms to remain in business, like stepped-up basis, state tax, um, all, all of those various uh, various issues that are so important to keeping family farms running we don't want to get in a position where we're 
we're taking money out of your right pocket, putting it in your left pocket, and you think you've gained something, that's that's not a that's not a valuable valuable proposition for us. So um, that that's that's I think there's a lot of people are watching to see what this this final agreement looks like. You ask about the climate bill, uh, the Potato Council, as well as a huge uh, uh, number of agricultural groups have been behind that bill. It's a lot of voluntary incentives to encourage producers to to take um, very positive actions on their on their farms in terms of mitigating some of the climate challenges that we face. We think that's the right way to go. Government mandates are are not uh, not how we want to address this problem. We we want to be encouraging uh, good activities and also recognizing the activities, the very positive and expensive activities that farmers have already undertaken. So uh, we we were heartened by that was an overwhelming vote in the Senate. You don't see that very often. So um, we thought that was a good sign moving forward. And we'll see what happens. Uh... Moving forward with that, uh, the West Coast port backup, how's that impacted your industry? Yeah, it's been a it's been a huge challenge um, in, in terms of uh, getting just just simply getting a booking to uh, to get your container of potatoes on a ship has been a real, real challenge. Um, I, I, I don't think it's unlike a lot of folks in agriculture. They've all been facing these, um, these difficulties. Uh, clearly, you've got a huge number of containers that are backed up. Um, the shipping lines are, are rushing to get empties back to the Far East so they can, um, they can load them up with products that the U.S. needs. And unfortunately, that rush to, to get those empty containers back is impacting the ability for uh, refrigerated containers, typically what you ship um, agricultural product in. Uh, it, it's really impacted their ability to get a slot on these on these vessels. Yeah, over, over time, hopefully that is going to sort out. But right now, it's been uh, it's been painful, both in terms of just physically getting the space, and then also if you get if you're lucky enough to get the space, the costs are out of sight, and so that that's created some real challenges for our exporters. Yep, some big issues indeed. Cam, thanks to, for your time. Always good to talk with you. Appreciate it. Thank you, Mike. Take care. Cam Quarles, CEO of the National Potato Council. Big USDA report out tomorrow. Markets focus more on that or on the weather. We'll talk about that with Todd Holtman, lead analyst for DTN, next on AOA. Hi, this is Mike Adams. You're listening to AOA, Adams on Agriculture. Don't go away. More Adams on Agriculture coming right up. Join us every Tuesday for Around the Table, brought to you by CHS, where we take a close look at the benefits of cooperative ownership. Every week, we'll host a new guest and discuss how you can get the most from working with your local cooperative. And we'll learn why farmers and ranchers just like you Choose cooperatives to help them persevere and prosper. So be sure to tune in each Tuesday or visit cooperativeownership.com to learn more. Young farmers don't listen to the radio, right? Wrong. In a recent survey, 74% of young producers said they get their most important agricultural information from their trusted farm radio station. Surprised? Don't be. If you think about it, it makes perfect sense. Radio is the perfect companion because it goes with you everywhere. 
Whether you're in the shop, on the combine, or in the truck, Farm Radio is right there with you. This message brought to you by the National Association of Farm Broadcasting. You're listening to AOA. I'm Kirsten Rawl. The crop progress report was less negative for corn, beans, and winter wheat crops, but that number fell just short of trade expectations. U.S. corn and wheat conditions declined 1%, and soybeans were unchanged relative to the prior week. U.S. spring wheat ratings were downgraded further yesterday as the USDA knocked another five points off its spring wheat condition rating, dropping it down to only 20%, good to excellent condition rating overall. This is far off the 65%, good to excellent condition rating over the five-year average. Trade was expecting a small increase in all three. On the Board of Trade, September corn trading two and a fraction higher at 560 and a half cent. The December contract up two and three quarters at 549 and three quarters. For soybeans, the August contract down three quarters at 1336. The November contract down three and a fraction at 1309 and a fraction. For wheat, Chicago wheat September up a penny and a fraction at 652 and three quarters. Kansas City wheat September up five and three quarters at 632 and a half cent. Minneapolis spring wheat September down 13 and a fraction at 820 and three quarters. The July contract down 16 and a half cent at 826. Wednesday is the last trading day for the June live cattle contract, which may limit trading activity until then. We are seeing lower futures on the Board of Trade for live cattle. The October contract down 15 at 127.37. The August contract down 15 at 121.45. For feeder cattle, the August contract down 15 at 156.20. September down 32 at 158.75. In lean hogs, the August contract down 2 at 102.75. October down 35 at 87.05. In the outside markets, the Dow is up 130 points, the Nasdaq Composite down 15, the S&P 500 up 5, crude oil in New York, the August contract up 33 at 73.24 per barrel, the U.S. dollar index is trending higher. You're listening to AOA, I'm Kirsten Rall. I'll take dig a little, learn a lot for 30 bushels. Soft and crumbly. Tom. How does healthy soil feel to the touch? Correct. Dig a little for 40 bushels. Sweet and earthy. Tom. What does healthy soil smell like? Yes, go again. Dig a little for 50 bushels. Dark, porous, and alive. Tom. What does healthy soil look like? You win. Understanding the basics and benefits of healthy soil can make your farm a winner, too, through lower input costs, better yields, and drought protection, which can lead to a healthier bottom line for your business. Contact your local Natural Resources Conservation Service office today to find out how you can unlock the secrets in your soil. This message brought to you by USDA's Natural Resources Conservation Service and this radio station. Hi, this is Mike Adams. Thanks for listening to Adams on Agriculture. Join me Monday through Friday for the latest farm and agriculture news from around the world. Information America's farmers and ranchers need to know on AOA. Now, back to Mike Adams. And we're joined by DTN lead analyst Todd Holtman. All right, Todd, we're finally just about here to this uh, big June 30th USDA report. We've been talking about it for weeks, but now we have all this rain in some areas, still very dry in other areas. Are the markets more focused on the weather or the USDA report? 
Well, for today, uh, I would say weather, Mike, and it's just uh, it's the way things are right now. There's so much uncertainty about the year ahead. Because we have those tight supplies, the market is a little extra sensitive to every uh, threat of weather, and, and we get a pretty volatile response, and we've seen that now uh, throughout May and June. And, uh, you know, we thought we were going to get better rains over the weekend to kind of improve the conditions overall. But uh, after uh, things were said and done, we did get uh, a lot of good beneficial rain, but some areas got too much, and, and we still have big parts of the Corn Belt that are still far too dry. Yeah, so you can ha- – how often in late June do you have a rainy stretch of weather and markets go up? That that doesn't usually go together, right? Yeah, uh, and, you know, it's part of not having a 2 billion bushel corn surplus to kind of uh, buffer uh, any of the concerns you have. This year we have a situation where we really need every major state to be involved uh, with good production to keep those supply levels up at healthy levels and uh that's that's threatened right now it's it's going to be very tough uh to see if we can meet demand in the new season all right so what are you most focused on in tomorrow's report well i i think there's no doubt that typically the planted acres get the most headline attention and will probably get the most price response uh, in the market. Uh, the speculative side of the market seems to understand that part of the equation very easily. And uh, I, I think it's been pretty well laid out that uh, a lot of us think we're going to see more corn and soybean acres than uh, USDA is currently estimating. The question probably really is, are corn acres going to be much higher than we expect, as some think they will be? I still am shooting for $93 million, which would be just... Uh, it would be higher than a year ago, but really a modest level of production as we look forward to the new season. On the soybeans, I'm still uh, hoping for 90 million acres, but the way private estimates have been, it may be a struggle to get to that 90 million label, uh, level. And that makes me very concerned that we just aren't going to have enough soybean acres this year to produce enough soybeans to, to stay up with the demand that we're going to be facing. Let's break it down a little more. Will there be a lot of focus? We're assuming the acres numbers are going to be up, but then will the focus be on where those acres are? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, We know that the the troubled areas are going to be in the Dakotas. Those are also tend to be uh, lower yield areas among the major producing states. Uh, and, and we're going to see higher acres in that area most likely because that's where a lot of prevented planting acres have been uh, in years prior. And uh, they were much drier this year. They got a lot more planted. So a lot of the new acres are going to be in those lower yielding areas. There's uh, no doubt about that. It, but as I say, uh, even last year, the Dakotas accounted for 10% of soybean production and roughly 6% of corn production. Most years, uh, we could get by with with, uh, lesser production in the Dakotas, but this year, again, when all the supplies are so tight, uh, it's hard to forego that production and and really uh, not see it tighten the bottom line. So the biggest acres increase could come in the areas hardest hit by the drought. Yes, and I think that's fair to say. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, uh, so then, I so then you look at it. More acres 
in that case, and more acres don't necessarily uh, 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 translate into bigger production, and because those those extra acres may not be a, uh, producing much this year. Yeah, and 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 that's the real challenge in this year where we're scratching and clawing for every bit of production we can get. Uh, just to maintain kind of satisfactory levels of supplies, you're, you're absolutely right. Uh, and so the next question people will have was, well, what about USDA's yield estimate, 179.5 on corn? I don't think that looks realistic at this point uh, because of the factors we're talking about here and, of course, because of the, the early weather threat that we're having this season. The problem is, uh, I'm not sure when USDA is going to actually adjust that yield estimate lower. It might take until they get into the fields in September. We're talking with DTN lead analyst Todd Holtman. Todd, we go through this most years where you, if there's a problem in one part of the country, you start looking, okay, can another part of the country be up enough to make up for it? So the question is going yeah. to be, we know the eastern Corn Belt's been in pretty good shape. There have been some questions in the, in the middle. Uh, it's going to be a, how do we piece all this together for the final uh, result? Yeah, I, I think uh, it's really going to be important. Again, the swing states of Iowa and Minnesota are going to play a big part. And uh, if, if they don't come through with a successful crop, uh, it's, it's going to be a very tough situation production-wise overall. This is just a year where... Uh, it, it's all needed, and to have Iowa and Minnesota still somewhat threatened by uh, drought here is a, a it's a threatening sign. So we're you know we're not looking at record uh, yield scenarios this year, at least this far in the game uh, by any means. Yeah, the fact that you have states like Iowa and Minnesota still in question here at the end of June, uh, that. Uh that causes some concern. All right, let's. Uh, what else in the report tomorrow should we be looking for? Well, uh, my favorite actually are the grain stocks, and I say that because that is the one check and balance on the whole USDA system that uh, keeps the whole estimating process somewhat honest. You have to go out there periodically, in USDA's case, quarterly and look at actual inventories and get their best assessment of how, how much corn and soybeans and wheat uh, we actually have. And lots of times uh, those actual assessments differ from what we uh, thought was true. And, and that's why uh, I like this check and balance part of the estimating process. In the case of corn, we've been looking at July to September corn spreads in excess of a dollar, now over a dollar twenty a bushel. So in other words, commercials are so eager to get their hands on corn that they're willing to pay a dollar twenty more for July corn as opposed to wait a couple of months more and, and get a much cheaper price. That's a strong sign of demand and tight supply and leads me to believe that we could come in less than expected on the June 1 corn stocks number. Uh, Dow Jones, is aver their survey is averaging 4.2 billion bushels. I'm wondering if we're going to see something closer to 4 billion bushels, and uh, that will just uh, tighten the, the whole corn price scenario uh, that much more. On soybeans, we have a bit of the uh, opposite effect here. Now, we do have uh, a roughly a 20% premium in the July soybean price over August, and that's normally bullish. But at the same time, we've seen a big unraveling of cash soybean prices uh, from 
the futures contracts uh, ever since the end of April. So we've seen a, a dramatic slowdown in the demand pressure for those cash soybeans. And that makes me wonder if we're going to see a little higher than expected uh, soybean uh, supply here on June 1st. And that probably is the surprise of the summer to me because it, it looked all year long like we were in a very, very tight scenario. But evidently at some point, uh, perhaps commercials got the supplies they needed and they feel more comfortable about summer. We've seen soybean meal prices drop. We've seen old crop soybean prices drop near their uh, lowest levels this year. So it, it looks like the demand pressure has eased for soybeans and we may see a little more in tomorrow's report than expected. So you still see tomorrow being a big market moving report? Yeah, you know, in the past five years, we've had double-digit moves in December corn and no beans in four of the five. Uh, and I, I would expect no less from tomorrow's report. And the, the one thing it really does is it takes a lot of uncertainty off the table. You know, right now we're guessing how big that corn crop might possibly be and how much supplies will actually be. Tomorrow's uh, numbers really help uh, define that market much better for us and uh, sometimes it can take a lot of worries off the table and, and send prices one direction. And if it doesn't go, <laughs> if, if it doesn't go in the direction that uh, many want to see it, then they then you start questioning the uh, the accuracy and the validity of the numbers. <laughs> yeah, right. And, and of course, uh, probably the worst acreage report in my career has been the 2019 report when we had such wet conditions and. USDA came out with a higher than expected number, which just was not related to reality. But I have to say, uh, the 20-year track record is actually pretty good for the planted uh, acre estimates. The, the only thing uh, that we can have a beef with USDA about is that there is a tendency to overestimate the corn and soybean acres uh, that uh, do come out. But the... the uh, the size of the airs have actually been respectably small. Well, we'll soon see. Again, this is a much-anticipated report, and uh, we'll find out what USDA has for us and how the markets react. As always, good to talk with you, Todd, and we'll talk again soon after we see what they come out with. Thank you. Very good. Thanks, Mike. DTN Lead Analyst Todd Holtman. Up next, we'll talk with University of Illinois ag economist Scott Irwin. We want to get his thoughts on the Supreme Court ruling concerning the RFS waivers. What does that mean for the biofuels industry moving forward? We'll get his thoughts next, right here on AOA. Hi, this is Mike Adams. You're listening to AOA, Adams on Agriculture. Don't go away. More Adams on Agriculture coming right up. 54. So, basically, it's too late to start saving for retirement, right? Not right. Starting to save, even in your 50s, can really make a difference. Well, right now, saving seems hard to wrap my head around. Plus, with the way this year's been going... <laughs> hey, listen. It's okay. You still got this. Just go to aceyourretirement.org. It's an online tool from AARP that can help you get your retirement savings on track no matter your age. It's free and only takes about three minutes. I like three minutes. Yeah. At aceyourretirement.org, you'll chat with Avo, the friendly digital retirement coach. Just answer a few questions and you'll get a personalized plan and tips to help boost your retirement savings. 
tips that are easy to understand and tailor to your lifestyle. I like that too. Plus, it's sponsored by AARP, so you know they got your back. Just head to aceyourretirement.org and make your plan to start saving for retirement. Thanks. That's aceyourretirement.org. A message from AARP and the Ad Council. All right, crew, let's get her dug. Honey, you want to give me a hand? I'm planting that tree, remember? No matter how large or small your digging project may be, no matter how urban or rural, you must always call 811 before any digging project. 811 is our national one-call number, alerting your local utility companies to come out and mark any lines they have near your dig site. You must call 811 at least two to three business days before any digging project so you can avoid hitting our essential buried utilities. This includes natural gas and petroleum pipelines, electric, communication cables, and water and sewer lines. So before you do this or this, make sure you do this. For digging projects big or small, make the call to 811. Brought to you by Common Ground Alliance. Recently on Adams on Agriculture, president of the National Corn Growers Association, John Linder. How do you feel about how the Biden administration is dealing with the biofuels industry? Do you think they're fully supportive? Uh, and again, the statement we just heard from uh, Jarrett Renshaw with Reuters that the Biden administration is not a fan of liquid fuels. How do you feel about that? I'd have to say that perspective would disappoint me. I believe that they are listening to us and they want to find a path forward. And, you know, corn ethanol checks so many boxes. I think it's a great story. And I think the opportunity to recognize that it fully fits the climate strategy today and it will only get better going forward. And so that's our our effort of advocation for our corn farmers is so critical to the demand base for corn, right? And the farmers really need us to help provide that stability, that certainty, so the next generation has a place in agriculture as they desire. For the information important to rural America, join us on Adams on Agriculture. This is Around the Table, where we explore the benefits of cooperative ownership. Our guest today is Tara Haskins from AgriSafe Network, here to talk about evaluating personal health and well-being. What are some signs people may see in a loved one or themselves that indicate that they might be struggling? Mental distress can look very different from person to person with different ranges of severity, but some real common things to look for are constant worry, inability to sleep, a change in appetite. Irritability is really very common, particularly in men when we're looking at things like anxiety maybe or depression. If someone looks tired, they may anger easily, avoiding conversations or isolating and even a change in their appearance because over time that sort of self-care, you know, starts lacking. And I think it's um, important to also remember that people can start talking about regret failure. So some of their conversations may give you these sort of subtle hints that someone is feeling hopeless or maybe even suicidal if they say things like, I'm a burden or a failure or cashing in. So those sort of underlying phrases may have some very important meanings. There are resources available Mm -hmm. and where people can learn more about mental health and well-being, right? But AgriSafe recommends that you go to the National Library of Medicine for health information. That information is evidence-based, research-based. It's all just free information for you. Medline Plus has a lot of good information if you have questions about maybe a specific mental disorder or medications. 
the one I love on their website is they have a great sheet on what does counseling look like, because that might be the big barrier if you're afraid to you know, seek out a counselor. Understanding what counseling really is can sometimes relieve some of that fear. That's Tara Haskins from AgriSafe Network. Thanks for joining us around the table. Learn more about the benefits of co-op ownership from CHS at cooperativeownership.com. You're listening to AOA Adams on Agriculture. Hi, this is Mike Adams. You can rely on us for the latest farm and ranch news from around the world. Information America's farmers and ranchers need to know on AOA. Now, back to Mike Adams. Joined now by Scott Irwin, University of Illinois Ag Economist. Want to talk about the Supreme Court ruling on RFS waiver. Scott, thanks for joining us. Uh, I know the biofuels industry is disappointed, but they're putting a, a positive spin on it and saying, and, and they're right, it basically it's right back to EPA, right? The, the, the Supreme Court didn't say you can't, uh, uh, you have to grant these uh, waivers. It, it puts it back in, in their discretion. So you're back to counting on EPA. It's kind of where the industry was. They're hopeful that this, uh, this EPA won't grant as many as past EPAs, but only time will tell. Well, that's right. I think the situation is actually even better than that, Mike, because the Supreme Court did not address or take up the second part of the Supreme Court, or the Tenth Circuit Court decision that all this started on, and that has to do with proving that RIN cost cannot be passed through um, into the crack spread for refiners, and uh, that's going to be a big hurdle going forward. But do we have a situation now? Maybe they don't grant as many waivers, but they could lower the RVO uh, uh, requirements, uh, and and that could uh, hurt the uh, biofuels industry in that way, while at the same time the administration could say, hey, we're not granting as many waivers. They could do that, but they have to have some kind of justification for uh, lowering the waivers uh, or invoking general waiver authority. The Trump administration certainly would have done that if it was easy to do. And so there's a lot of this chatter about lowering the RVOs, but that's easier said than done because the RFS statutes put a very high standard for or hurdle for legally meeting uh, the requirements to lower the RVOs. The Biden administration so far has said many encouraging things about uh, supporting biofuels, but at the same time, it's obvious their focus is on electric vehicles and brings into question just how much support they're willing to give uh, anyone in the liquid fuels industry. So it, it's kind of been mixed signals somewhat. Absolutely. Um, I think that the Biden administration right now is actually could be characterized as being schizophrenic in their approach to uh, energy policy. I mean, basically, they're responding to pressures from um, the refining industry, which is basically kind of the sworn enemy of the climate change um interests and people inside the Biden administration. I mean, I think there have to be people inside the Biden administration just shaking their head at what's going on. 
Yeah, it's a very, very interesting and somewhat confusing situation to try to figure out. So overall, Scott, the Supreme Court ruling, was it, how do you view it as for the biofuels industry? Uh, was it totally bad news or some good news or overall positive or negative? Uh, just slightly negative at, at worst. And how much impact do you see it having moving forward, or do we know until we see how the EPA uh, uh, acts on these requests they have for waivers? I mean, that's going to be the acid test, Mike. We, we won't know until the Biden administration has to actually take some actions on these SRE petitions. Then we'll know. So it's it was thought that renewables, especially like renewable diesel, that this these climate goals and these climate programs, this would really open the door for them. But again, we're wondering, is that door really open or is it just partially open? And uh, while it's open a crack for uh, renewables, when really the door is swung wide open for the for electric vehicles. So where do you see us going with this? In the end, I think that we're going to end up close to the status quo um, from basically close to full implementation of the RFS standards, which is what we thought uh, a number of months ago. I think when it all settles out, the Biden administration is not going to offer uh, too many SREs, and I think that they're going to run into a brick wall in terms of a legal justification for cutting back uh, the RVOs. So uh, I guess that probably makes me more optimistic than most, but I noticed that the uh, RIN market seems to be agreeing with my perception. It's really not crashed since the uh, Supreme Court issued, uh, issued its decision. I was going to ask you about the rent market because that's been such a contentious issue. Uh, where do you see that going now? I think that the market, the rent market, is going to probably slowly but surely resume its upward trend when it dawns on people that the Biden administration is probably really not going to have any viable option. They're not going to issue a massive amount of SREs like the Trump administration did. I just don't see that happening. And if they don't do that, then you're going to see, you know, I think uh, relatively high and rising RIN prices. Maybe there's some other kind of surprise. You know, the RFS stuff we've been through in the last five, six years, you know, there's been all sorts of surprises, and maybe there's another one sitting in Washington, D.C. that, you know, we've never seen before. But absent that, I think that's where we're headed. It's an issue we always strive for clarity on, and it seems like we can't get it. Well, it's just that the uh, political forces are just so... Um, opposed and irreconcilable and so it's just kind of this constant uh, butting of heads in Washington DC with very little room for compromise and that's why it's hard to predict how this is going to come out. Yeah I think we'd hope many of us had hoped that the Supreme Court ruling would bring some uh, finality and clarity to the issue but it really hasn't so here we go again. Scott good to talk with you thanks a lot. Always a pleasure. 
University of Illinois Ag Economist Scott Irwin. That wraps it up for today. Thanks so much for joining us. Hope you'll be with us again tomorrow right here on AOA. Hi, this is Mike Adams. Thanks for listening to Adams on Agriculture. Join me Monday through Friday for the latest farm and agriculture news from around the world.